So thanks for those uh, kind words, Rick. And it, and it is really a, an honor to be here uh, at Mershon, and, and I want to say thank you to all those who were involved in uh, selecting me and, and my book for this uh, prize. Now, <clears throat> of course, uh, writing a book, especially when it uh, comes from your dissertation, often seems like a very solitary venture, but of course it's not. Uh, there are many people uh, who help me help make uh, Final Solutions what it is, not least among them my advisors uh, from MIT, who, who are Steve Van Evra, uh, Barry Posen, Tom Christensen, and the late Myron Wiener. So I, I wanted to make sure to say thank you uh, to them uh, before I began. And I also wanted to say a special thanks uh, to Mershon's own John Mueller, uh, who helped me in this book project in more ways than I can count. Uh, I met John about seven or eight years ago now, <clears throat> rather by accident, at an APSA panel in which I was presenting some of the research that would later become one of the core chapters of the book. And John had been working on some uh, rather similar ideas for a chapter of what would become his book, Remnants uh, of War. And uh, after John read my stuff, he asked if I would send him the remainder of the chapters of my dissertation when it was done so he could have a look at them. Ultimately, John ended up reading those chapters, I think at least three times, uh, line by line, and gave me some of the best and most critical comments I think I've received uh, from the many people who, uh, who I'd shown the manuscript to. Uh, but that wasn't all John did. In addition to that, he helped me find the publisher for the book uh, at Cornell. He wrote a very flattering blurb uh, on the dust jacket for me. He contributed recently to a symposium on the book uh, in security studies that came out about uh, a year ago. And then even after the book was done and, and in print, John continued to help me with it. I received an email from him about a year ago alerting me to a typo on page 59 of the book and telling me that I could have it corrected in time for the soft cover. So John, go to page 59. It's corrected now. Um, he's, he's just been enormously helpful. So I figured no better opportunity than this here at Mershon uh, to tell John again how immensely grateful I am for everything uh, he did for me uh, and for the book. Without you, it really wouldn't have been the same book as it is, so I, I can't say enough how much I appreciate it. Now, the Furnace Ward uh, also has some special meaning for me, and I could say that for at least uh, two reasons. First of all, uh, when I look back over the previous recipients of the award, many of whom I guess are here on the, on the wall behind us, uh, people like John Mearsheimer, my advisor Barry Posen, Steve Walt, many, many other prominent names. Uh, I'm simply humbled to be in that extraordinary uh, company. I read many of these books uh, when I was an undergraduate in college. These were the scholars, these were the ideas that got me interested in a career in international relations and security studies to begin with. And so, again, I feel um, enormously proud, although still uh, somewhat undeserving, uh, to be listed uh, on the same page with them. So again, very grateful for that. But second, and, and maybe even more importantly, the Furnace Award has a special meaning for me because I think it um, goes a long way towards fulfilling what was one of my main ambitions in writing the book in the first place. And that ambition was not just to receive recognition uh, as everybody wants to receive for whatever they write. Uh, but I'm especially grateful that uh, the book is recognized by the Furnace Award, which focuses, as you know, on books published on the subjects relating to security studies and international uh, relations, as opposed to just simply general recognition for the book's uh, quality. And to explain why that's so important to me, I thought maybe it would be useful to say a few words about how 
I got interested in studying this uh, subject, genocide, mass killing, which, as many of you will know, are not traditional subjects uh, for people who uh, study security studies or international relations to spend their time uh, on, although those were the things that I trained as, uh, as a graduate student at MIT. I started to become interested in security studies in general in the later years of the Cold War when I was an undergraduate uh, at Stanford. And at that time, of course, the most important uh, issues that people studying security uh, were thinking about were, was the possibility of a nuclear war uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union. And so most people working in our field, uh, of course, were working on uh, questions of uh, military and defense policies, nuclear deterrence, more generally the causes of war and peace, trying to shed light on this uh, problem that they thought might be the greatest threat uh, to human life uh, in the world. Now, fortunately for the world, uh, but unfortunately for a number of graduate students and, and faculty in the middle of books on Kremlinology or uh, arms control, the Cold War ended just as I entered uh, graduate school. Um, and that left a lot of us, uh, a lot of people, both those ahead of me and myself, I went to graduate school planning to write a, a dissertation on missile defense. Uh, it left a lot of us wondering what we were uh, going to be spending our time uh, writing on. At the same time, of course, this is the early 90s, genocide started to be uh, all over the newspapers. It's the early 90s when the genocide and, uh, and ethnic violence in the former Yugoslavia starts to break. And of course, in 1994, the, the most sort of unambiguous case of genocide since the Holocaust happens in, uh, in Rwanda. These were quite troubling events. And as I watched them unfold, uh, I, I struggled to try to understand them and, and was reminded of uh, of my background in security studies, in fact, reminded of a very specific passage from Tom Schelling's classic book, Arms and Influence, which I read first as an undergraduate in a, uh, at Stanford in a course taught by uh, Scott Sagan. And in this part of the book, Schelling's trying to describe what it is that's uh, really changed about the world now that nuclear weapons were here. What's, what's so unique about these weapons? Why are they revolutionary? And Schelling says, you know, it's not that nuclear weapons have uh, given people for the first time the ability to wipe each other out in huge numbers. That's always been there. And then he says this line that always stuck in my head. I'll quote him here. Uh, Against a defenseless people, there's not much that nuclear weapons can do that couldn't be done with an ice pick. So very graphic line from an otherwise sort of staid formal book on uh, deterrence theory. And I can remember reading it. I, I must have been 20 years old at the time and, and, and remembered it. The more I thought about it, though, at now watching what was going on uh, in the world around me, I started to realize that we'd spent all of our time focused on, uh, on, on nuclear war, on the possibility of a nuclear holocaust. We'd sort of forgotten about the actual holocaust and uh, holocausts that were carried out with the low-tech equivalent of nuclear weapons, again, the, the ice picks. Here they were uh, actually happening uh, all around us. And in fact, after uh, I spent some time tracking down death toll estimates for what turned out to be the, at a minimum, 50 separate instances of mass killing and genocide in the 20th century, I realized that this kind of violence had been probably the most, uh, certainly one of the most significant causes of violent death in the last 100 years. By my count, somewhere between 50 million and 150 million people have lost their lives <coughs> in these episodes. Uh, over the last century. And that would put mass killing in the same basic category as war itself, which by one estimate has killed about 34 million combatants over that same 100-year period. Um, so 
probably more significant than war itself, at least in terms of the deaths uh, of combatants. So, of course, this made me wonder, how, how could this happen, right? We talked about nuclear weapons and nuclear war, but we never actually used them, at least outside of World War II, right? We, we, we talked about killing civilians in huge numbers, but we never actually done it. And here it was happening, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of civilians being killed in cold blood. And I thought, I don't know what's causing this. So I was a graduate student, and I figured the way to find out the answers to such questions is to go to the library. And of course, I uh, had intended to just pick up a book or two on genocide, be convinced that somebody else had the right answer, go back to studying missile defense or whatever else it was going to be that uh, I was going to ultimately end up writing my dissertation on. But like many graduate students, when they go to the library to, to find answers, I was dissatisfied quickly with, uh, with the kinds of answers that I found there. Um, turned out that almost all the theoretical work that had been produced on genocide, lots of history, especially history of the Holocaust, but in terms of the, the general theoretical work that had been produced, virtually all of it had been produced by sociologists and uh, psychologists, virtually nothing uh, by political scientists at all. It's barren uh, in terms of uh, discussion by political scientists and nothing at all by anyone involved in the fields of international relations or security studies. <clears throat> And moreover, the, the kinds of explanations, maybe not surprisingly, that I found in these books uh, were just extremely different uh, from the kinds of explanations I'd been used to reading about for other kinds of organized violence, like war, uh, in the security studies literature. Most of this writing on uh, genocide <coughs> tended to focus on very broad social structures, uh, variables that uh, impacted society as a whole, things like hatred, discrimination between groups, institutionalized uh, cleavages between social groups and society. Um, incidentally, these were the same kinds of things that I think a lot of the journalists and even policymakers were talking about when they talked about the causes of mass killing and genocide in the uh, early 1990s. Again, uh, none of that, uh, all that surprising given the, the nature of the, uh, or the training of the people who were writing about it. They wanted to know what is it that could motivate an individual person to go join up in a group that's, whose task it is to kill uh, others in large numbers, and they were focusing on <clears throat> these social factors to explain it. But again, this seemed rather odd to me given the five or six years of training I'd had up till that point, studying primarily about how the United States and the Soviet Union were each quietly plotting to kill millions upon millions of each other's uh, civilians, and virtually nobody who was writing about that subject said that the reason we were doing it is because we were obsessed with hatred uh, for the Russians or they with us, although um, perhaps we ultimately came uh, to that state. That wasn't the reason why we built nuclear weapons, not the reason why we contemplated using them in various ways. <clears throat> Everybody seemed to accept that we could consider violence, even violence on this scale against millions of innocent people, uh, not because of hatreds uh, or even ideology, uh, but because of <coughs> cold, calculated, strategic reasons. And so I started to wonder, couldn't the same kinds of uh, strategic thinking that students of security studies had always said were behind not just nuclear war, but other kinds of war as well, couldn't those be playing a role in mass killing and genocide? And, and why not? Why should we start with the assumption that uh, this is a completely different kind of, of violence? And in fact, uh, the more I studied the subject uh, and these problems, the more and more I found that that conventional wisdom uh, was wrong and that 
and that genocide, mass killing, and more traditional forms of organized violence like war uh, really had much more in common than, than we had uh, led ourselves to believe. So I guess this is the long way of saying that I always hoped, and it was my intention in the beginning uh, when I set out to write this book, to show that the field of security studies had something important to add to the study of genocide and mass killing, and I, and I hope in some way that the Furness Award is, uh, is some validation of that belief, so it has a, a, a special meaning for me for that reason. <clears throat> now, in the rest of the time that I have here, I, I thought uh, I wouldn't uh, bore you with a sort of a blow-by-blow blow detailed summary of the arguments uh, in the book, but instead would give you a more overview from 30,000 feet uh, to try to give, flesh out a little bit about how I came to this conclusion um, that we could look at uh, mass killing and genocide more like we look at traditional forms of violence, um, and then spend a little bit of time at the end talking about some implications and extensions of uh, these arguments for things that are going on in the world around us today. So let's start first, uh, again, with the state of the literature that, as I found it in the early 90s. It's worth noting now uh, how much that literature has changed. I think uh, it's quite a lot more developed than it was then. A lot more has been written on genocide in general, and I think the writing uh, tends to be much more sophisticated today than it was then. But what's wrong with this general idea, the one that pervaded the literature, pervaded the conventional wisdom in the 90s, the idea that if you want to know what distinguishes societies that are likely to experience violence on a massive scale from societies that uh, are likely to be more stable, what you need to look for is six societies, societies that are in some ways um, you know, riven with hatred and, and discrimination. What's wrong with that? It seems relatively commonsensical that that should be uh, true. There's a lot I could uh, say about this, but I think uh, I want to focus on two main points. Uh, first and most directly here, it turns out that just the simple correlation that we would expect to find between levels of uh, discrimination, social hatred, uh, cleavages, simply don't provide a very good predictor. These aren't correlated well with the places where mass killing and genocide occur. And there's two ways uh, to look at this kind of evidence or two sides of the same coin. On the first hand, uh, we have lots of examples of places where violence against civilians, massive violence, uh, occurs, genocide, even with relatively little history of intense uh, discrimination or hatred between social groups. Maybe the most revealing examples here, I think, come from the communist states, the three that I look at in my book, the Soviet Union, China, and Cambodia, are responsible for the most bloody episodes of uh, mass killing in the 20th century. Millions upon millions, tens of millions in the case of both the Soviet Union and China uh, were killed there. Of course, as anybody who studied those events knows, there were some ethnic groups that were targeted in each of those uh, cases, but, um, uh, but never were those groups the majority of the victims. Again, each of them targeted uh, some minorities, but the majority of the victims were from the same social and ethnic groups as their perpetrators. In fact, in many cases, the uh, victims came from the same political groups as the perpetrators, from the Communist Party itself in the Soviet Union, China, and Cambodia. Massive purges of tens of thousands of people. Quick question. Do you code that racist Yes, I do. Absolutely. Um, in, in addition to that, there were some victims in these cases of uh, uh, these communist cases, like the Kulaks in the Soviet Union or the so-called new people in Cambodia. 
that pretty clearly were created out of whole cloth by the communist leaders in the run-up to the violence. Uh, these, these couldn't have been the result of deep-seated, long-standing social hatreds because the groups didn't exist before the violence uh, took place. They were basically unknown, or at least not known in the way that uh, communist leaders drew on them uh, before the violence. Again, this doesn't mean that uh, these factors, discrimination, hatred, don't play some role in many cases of genocide uh, or mass killing. Sometimes they do. I think it's, it's uh, impossible to deny it. The problem is that even when you do see violence occurring between groups with a history of some discrimination, some uh, negative relations, those relations don't have to be uh, so unusually severe as to differentiate them well from other kinds of places where groups also uh, have some problems but haven't ended up killing each other in large numbers. Uh, there's lots of examples of this uh, kind of situation. So, for example, now it's, it's generally accepted that uh, in places like Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia, although relations between ethnic groups were far from perfect, they really weren't substantially worse than relations between ethnic groups in many, many other countries which never saw violence on this scale. In both Yugoslavia and Rwanda, just to give you one little factoid, levels of intermarriage between victims and perpetrators are actually higher than levels of intermarriage than uh, there are between African Americans and blacks, I mean African Americans and whites in our own country. Um, so there was at least some evidence that relations in those countries were, were better even than relations between some groups in our own country. And even in a country like Nazi Germany where it's pretty clear that Jews were uh, subject to pervasive discrimination, most scholars agree that anti-Semitism and institutionalized discrimination against Jews was actually worse in virtually every other European country with a major Jewish population, including France, Russia, uh, and, uh, and Poland. Pre-war Germany, yes. Pre-Nazi Germany, yes. So if you look at Europe in the early 30s and, and 20s, I don't think uh, most scholars would have pointed to Germany as the most anti-Semitic country in Europe not to say they would have said it was free of anti-Semitism, which it certainly was not. Um, uh, so, uh, so again, these these kinds of uh, this kind of violence doesn't, uh, or this kind of relationship doesn't necessarily provide a good indicator of where genocide and mass killing will occur. But the other way to look at it is the other side of this coin, right? Conversely, we find that there are actually lots of societies with quite intense levels of hatred and discrimination, institutionalized discrimination between groups that managed to exist for extended periods of time, also without uh, violence on the scale that I've been talking about. I always have to remind my uh, students when I'm teaching about genocide that the Jim Crow era South was as discriminatory, as institutionalized discrimination as anything that happened in Germany uh, before the Nazis came to power, uh, as bad as, uh, as South Africa in many ways, which, by the way, presents another example of this. Uh, South Africa for decades upon decades. Institutionalized discrimination, high levels of hatred and distrust between groups, plenty of violence, but never genocide, uh, never mass killing on the scale as I define it in, in the book. So again, both sides of the coin provide uh, relatively poor predictors. Um, all of this is just to say that, that if we want a theory that explains why this kind of violence occurs in some places and not in others, Looking at factors like racism and discrimination is probably not going to do a very good job. I've given you mainly anecdotal examples here, uh, but increasingly we have some, although our, our measures of these things are, are meager, you have to admit, 
uh, increasingly the quantitative evidence that we have, some of it comes from my own subsequent work, shows that we can't find uh, any kind of uh, consistent relationship between levels of discrimination and levels of, uh, of violence. So again, I think we can have some confidence in that finding even though what I've given you today is mainly anecdotes. So now the question would be why not? Still seems like common sense that this is uh, where uh, this kind of violence should happen. So why, why the surprising finding that uh, it's not well correlated? The two things are not well correlated. Uh, why aren't these sick societies the ones that see mass killing? I think the reason that, they, that these sort of common sense explanations fail is uh, that most people and the common sense itself is based on a, on a poor understanding of the mechanics actual mechanics of mass killing, how it's carried out in the real world. And I think most people tend to simply overestimate how hard it is um, to get mass killing underway. Um, and they overestimate it in, in two related ways. First, I think they simply overestimate how hard it is to convince somebody, even somebody who lacks uh, pre-existing hatreds or discriminations against their, uh, a victim, to kill that person. Sad, uh, but I think this is, is true. It doesn't take strong uh, ethnic or ideological uh, predilections against one's victim to get someone to engage in even this kind of violence against innocent civilians. Anybody in the audience who's familiar with the experiments of Stanley Milgram or Philip Zimbardo uh, will know that this has been shown, I think quite conclusively, in a laboratory setting uh, where even normal individuals were willing uh, to engage in pretty high levels of violence and brutality against victims against whom they held no preconceived <coughs> notions uh, about their ethnicity. Uh, or uh, any other kind of ideological differences between them. But in the real world, the kinds of tools that uh, organizations who are responsible for carrying out mass killing have at their disposal to get people to kill are much stronger than anything that Milgram or Zimbardo had uh, in the laboratory. Uh, these are tools ranging from the kinds that Milgram and Zimbardo used, uh, the ability to draw on our innate willingness to comply with authority, to peer pressure, and finally, as we saw in mm. Rwanda, uh, to some great extent, simply outright coercion, coercing some people to kill others. Um, and I think you could see this, again, even in some examples of uh, real-world mass killings. So let's take the Holocaust, for example. Many of you will know there's a, a large debate ongoing still uh, among scholars of the Holocaust about what role anti-Semitism played uh, in the minds of the perpetrators of the Holocaust, with some people like Daniel Goldhagen arguing that it was the single most, perhaps the only important factor for understanding how perpetrators could have engaged in that kind of violence. And other people like Christopher Browning, probably the majority of Holocaust scholars, uh, looking for more moderate views, saying that anti-Semitism played some part but not the only part. But wherever you come down on that debate, it's important to remember that, of course, Jews were not the only victims uh, of the Nazis during World War II. And in fact, not only Poles either, who one might argue Germans also had negative feelings towards before the war. In fact, German soldiers killed people, innocent civilians of virtually every country they conquered, including France, Greece, and tens of thousands of civilians even in Italy, their former ally in the war after Italy leaves the war in 1943. Tens of thousands of Italian citizens slaughtered by uh, the Nazis in an effort to put down uh, insurrection in northern Italy. Um, so again, you cannot explain those uh, killings, which Germans were willing to do, uh, with reference to anti-Semitism or other pre-existing hatreds um, uh, among Germans. This is the first way that people overestimate 
how hard mass killing is to carry out and instigate. Second way I think that people uh, overestimate how hard it is to accomplish a mass killing is that they overestimate how many people are actually involved in this on the side of uh, the perpetrators. And this is where uh, John and my work is, uh, is quite similar. The more I studied these cases, the more I was really awed at just how few people are required to, uh, to, to carry out massive amounts of bloodshed on unorganized, defenseless uh, victims. Very small groups are, are capable. And this was surprising to me at first. Again, partly this is where my background in security studies betrayed me. I was used to understanding violence between groups, both of whom were armed. And in that sort of situation, large numbers are important. The larger your, your, your enemy is, the larger you have to be, and there's a natural progression. Both sides get larger and larger and larger in an effort to gain the upper hand. But when your victims are defenseless, unorganized, right, then it doesn't matter how large you are. You could kill them all. It's just a matter right, of time, determination, how long you care, you care to work at it. The numerical balance no longer is a factor. Um, so, so you can think about it this way. Um, take a group of 25,000 perpetrators, each of them killing one victim uh, a week. Well, they could kill over 100,000 uh, people in a month, and they could kill 1.2 million people in a year. That's 25,000 people, each killing just one victim a week. And I think that's actually probably a conservative estimate of the kind of violence that uh, perpetrators can carry out in the real world. Let me give you some examples of that if you aren't already convinced. Cambodia is maybe the, the most extreme example of this. In 1975, it's estimated that the Khmer Rouge numbered about 70,000 uh, soldiers, additional few thousand political cadre. They took uh, control of uh, a country of 8 million people and killed as many as 2 million of them, all in the space of about four years. At the, the primary Khmer Rouge detention facility, a place known as S21, there was a staff of about 300 people uh, on duty, and this included everybody from guards to people who were cooking to the janitors, everybody, 300 people. And at S21, it's been estimated that 14,000 people uh, were tortured and killed over the course of about three years. So an amazing amount of uh, violence by a relatively small group. Holocaust is another good example of this. As some of you will know, in the early stages of the Holocaust, most of the violence was carried out by firing squad, the gas chambers were not yet online. And in these firing squad operations, it was not uncommon for victims to outnumber their killers by as many as 50 to 1, 50 victims for every one killer. When the gas chambers did come online, of course, that ratio got even more disproportionate. So at Auschwitz, for example, at any given time, there were about 3,000 guards on duty. And at Auschwitz, uh, we know well over a million people killed, most of them in about two years. 3,000 people presiding over the deaths of a million people in, in two years. Even Rwanda, which I think many of us tend to think of as a, the best example of widespread popular participation, and it is true that in this case, a larger percentage of the population participated than in just about any other example I know of. But even here, it's a very small minority of the population who participate. Uh, somewhere, the, the high estimate is about 200,000 total perpetrators in Rwanda. Low estimate is about 100,000. 800,000 victims probably is the, is the right number. But those numbers, 100 to 200,000, represent less than 9% of the adult male population actually participating. And again, those figures include everybody who was present in the mobs uh, that were carrying out violence. Not every one of them actually 
killed anybody. So a large number in some absolute sense, but still a tiny minority of the population uh, overall. So if all that's true, what I've said, then it's probably not a good idea to go around trying to generalize from the behavior or attitudes even of this small group of people and assume that that represents the rest of society. There's absolutely no reason uh, to do that. So then we can conclude that the main reason that broad social factors like hatred, abstract levels of discrimination don't provide good predictors of mass killing is because in some very real sense, at least for the perpetrators, mass killing is not a broad social phenomena. It's a very limited social phenomena involving very limited participation, usually in undemocratic societies uh, in which people selected for these jobs are not selected at random from the population, but, draw, but selected specifically for their willingness to participate in various ways. And in fact, again, the more I studied this kind of violence, the more cases I found where the general public, including members of the perpetrator's own social groups, were clearly against uh, the violence, did not support it. Not to imply that there weren't any cases where the public was behind the killing. There are such cases. We could talk about them uh, at some point. But generally, I think the attitude of the public to this kind of violence could be better described as acquiescence, indifference, compliance, than it would be described as something like active support. Because again, perpetrators just don't need active support. It's not what they require, and they don't generally even ask for it from the, from the po population. What they ask for is simply lack of opposition, lack of active support for the victims. That's much more important to them than active support uh, for the killing itself. So where does this uh, leave us? Uh, well, what I take from all of this is a uh, realization of the extremely powerful role that very small groups uh, of people can play in both instigating and carrying out mass killing and genocide, extremely small groups. In fact, when you start to think about it, some of the most infamous uh, examples of genocide and mass killing in the 20th century, and here I'm thinking about, say, the Great Terror in the Soviet Union, um, the Cultural Revolution in China, uh, or even the Holocaust. Many people agree that those instances would never have happened were it not for the influence of single individual leaders, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, right? In fact, I think the cases of uh, Mao and Stalin are most instructive here because one needs to remember when Stalin and Mao died, each of them, replaced again by members of their own political party, high-ranking members of their own political party, decades of mass killing and genocide, wave after wave targeting different group every time, came to an abrupt end both those cases. So it appears that not only did Russian society, Chinese society not support mass killing and genocide in those cases, but even most members of their own party appeared to have serious problems with that kind of strategy. Hard, therefore, not to pin uh, a lot of the responsibility for this kind of uh, violence on just a very few people at the very top. Um, now again, I'm not trying to imply that just any group uh, at, at any time could carry out mass killing on a whim. Uh, I'm mainly talking about groups that have already managed to gain control of the political and military machinery of a state. We could talk about, uh, if people want, about what, uh, what that means in terms of the selection effect that's clearly already happened there. They came to power for some, uh, for some reason. Uh, but I won't get into that right now. So if we can't look at these kind of broad social structures to figure out where mass killing and genocide are likely to occur, what can explain it? Well, again, the more that I studied uh, these episodes and examples, the more I started to realize that this kind of violence is not really a bottom-up uh, phenomena, trickling up from the hatred uh, 
of the public at large, but really a top-down strategy that uh, specific elites, military and political leaders, used to achieve their goals. And again, this is not surprising coming from where uh, I started, which was the belief that organized violence like war, and now genocide as well, I concluded, is almost always an instrumental policy. It's not an end uh, in itself. People use it to achieve other ends. And so again, from, from that perspective, leaders are ordering mass killing not because they're uh, trying to fulfill the wishes of some hate-filled, bloodthirsty public, not because they simply want to kill for the sake of it, um, because in, but because in some sense they think of it as the most practical way to accomplish other objectives, um, objectives that are not simply killing uh, itself. These are countering serious uh, threats, political problems, uh, or even specific military challenges. And that means that if we want to understand where this kind of violence is likely to occur, we need to try to identify the specific situations uh, and conditions in which leaders will decide that this kind of violence really is the most practical way from their perspective, almost, almost always perverse perspective, um, uh, to achieve these, these ends. Um, because I argue that once they do decide that, uh, this kind of violence, even genocidal violence, is uh, relatively easy for them to actually carry out. So the hardest part is determining when they want to use it as opposed to determining when they'll be able uh, to use it. I'm not going to go through the different situations here in which I think these incentives are high, although that's actually the majority of what uh, I write about in the book. It's, I think, relatively easier to point out that mass killing can be strategic than it is to identify exactly the situations in which leaders are likely to, to resort to it. We can talk about it in, in the Q&A period if, if people are interested, but I didn't want to spend too much time on that now. Instead, I, I want to uh, wrap up a bit by saying a few words about what this might mean, especially for uh, efforts to prevent or limit genocide and mass killing in the future. Now, again, since a lot of the existing ideas, and this is still true today, suggest that the, the problems of genocide and mass killing are really problems of society at large. The answers that many people have forwarded about you know, what should we do, how should we prevent this kind of violence in the future, also tend to focus on fixing these problems uh, in society at large. Uh, you know, somehow reuniting, reintegrating divided societies, affecting some kind of fundamental change in the structure of these sick societies where genocide is likely to uh, occur, and the reason is anything less would be a band-aid solution, right? That if the, as long as those six structures are still there, as long as groups still hate each other, well, maybe genocide won't occur tomorrow, uh, but it will the next day, or the next day, or the next day. The, the structures are still there, causing uh, problems. You might ca call this, and some people do, the root causes approach to genocide or genocide prevention. Got to fix those root causes. Um, and scholars who uh, advocate this approach have proposed a number of uh, different ideas for how we could address these root causes, ranging from spreading democracy to increasing cultural exchanges between uh, groups, encouraging people to help one another, uh, providing basic needs to all members of society, I'm not making this up, uh, changing the way that uh, parents raise and educate their children. These are all actual ideas uh, that people propose. Uh, for ending genocide. Well, hard to imagine how anyone could be against providing basic needs for all members of society or providing better education, cultural exchanges. All of those are clearly good things, and, and I would support them. I, I assume all of us would. But as policy recommendations, they obviously leave much uh, to be desired. 
Many of these things we simply don't know how to do. We should face the facts. We don't know how to spread democracy, as we're realizing now uh, in Iraq. Uh, and we don't have the resources uh, to do that everywhere that it's needed. Remember, as I said, there are many, many societies on the face of the, the planet uh, uh, that are sick from these problems. Remember, if we were trying to stop the Holocaust in Germany, prevent it by ending anti-Semitism, we wouldn't just intervene in Germany to fix those problems. We would have had to intervene in five or six countries uh, in Europe to try to end anti-Semitism, because we wouldn't know that it was going to occur in Germany and not in Russia or Poland. Um, and so we'd have to expend our resources in all of those places. Maybe that would be a good expenditure, but remember, that would only be to deal with the problem of anti-Semitism. There are many other groups that were discriminated against, uh, even just in Europe, even just in the, in the late 1920s. So the, what? You might even have to intervene in the United States itself. We would be intervening many places to try to prevent these things. And I think even those who, who believe that we, that we can solve these problems in foreign countries, despite the fact that we struggle to solve them in our own country, even those who believe that usually recognize that this kind of intervention is going to take a long time and many, many resources. So again, I think it's somewhat unrealistic, even if it were, in fact, uh, the true solution to, to genocide and mass killing. Now, the perspective I've laid out today, I know in some ways is, uh, is a very pessimistic one, since it highlights just how easy it is to get people to participate in this kind of violence. And it says genocide could happen everywhere or anywhere, um, and, and that it does seem pessimistic, I know. On the other hand, I think it does offer at least some reason uh, for hope, because it suggests that the conventional wisdom, this root causes approach, actually has the root causes wrong. Uh, the root causes, I'm arguing, are not in society at large, but instead they lie with specific uh, groups of military or political leaders. And if that's right, then we should be thinking of strategies to prevent mass killing, genocide, or limit it that are designed to influence specific groups and leaders as opposed to influence and change uh, whole societies. Again, I, I could say more about uh, some specific ideas about that if people are interested. But for now, I just, I just want to say I think when we adopt this strategic perspective on mass killing, we, we can avoid what I think is often an automatic sort of knee-jerk assumption that any intervention to prevent mass killing or genocide is going to involve some open-ended policing uh, commitment that will take decades uh, and involve essentially standing between two implacable groups of ethnic enemies who are just waiting to get uh, at each other's throats. Uh, instead, I think that's not, uh, that's not uh, bound to fail. Short-term interventions interventions designed to change leaders at the higher levels uh, might be enough. They won't be enough to, to make those societies necessarily uh, look like the United States, look like a, a, a Western multi-ethnic democracy. I don't think we can do that, uh, but we might have the ability to uh, prevent uh, widespread uh, violence. Now, on the other hand, as the experience that we've had uh, in Iraq clearly demonstrates, changing foreign regimes is uh, often easier said uh, than it is done, and that's why I believe you don't ever want to underestimate, even in, in my more optimistic uh, point of view, the, the very serious practical and political challenges involved um, in intervention to prevent mass killing. In fact, in some ways, uh, because I think that the perpetrators of mass killing only undertake this violence when they think their own uh, most core interests are at stake, I think many of the limited strategies of intervention that we've undertaken in the 90s are unlikely to succeed. That means empty UN resolutions, not likely to convince leaders to back off from these policies. Right? Economic sanctions, not likely to convince a leader who feels that his regime is threatened uh, to back off from these policies. Even airstrikes, I think, 
uh, quite often not going to be enough to convince leaders to back away from a policy that they've only enacted uh, because they feel their, their own survival is in some way threatened. Um, so I don't want to underestimate uh, the real costs of it. Now, this reminds me, when, when people are talking about uh, intervention, when they talked about it a lot, argued for it in the 90s, they often had something to say about the putative lessons of the Holocaust, often invoked them in some way, shape, or form. But I always want to remind people that, uh, at least as far as the, the question of preventing genocide is concerned, the lessons of the Holocaust are not that preventing genocide is cheap or easy, or even that it could be morally unambiguous. Right? Remember, what did it take? to stop the Holocaust. It took the costliest, the bloodiest war in human history. And in that war, even the good guys did horrible things. In fact, we engaged in mass killing of our own during that war, right? Yet, I think most of us ultimately conclude that the war uh, was worth it, and it was, in the end, successful. Um, it, it did, in the end, stop uh, the Holocaust. Fortunately, not every war is World War II. And that means not every intervention to end genocide needs to be uh, like World War II, but it will be um, costly. Nevertheless, I think if the United States or the international community devoted even a fraction of the resources that we devote to the defense of more traditional interests, right now we've lost over 2,000 soldiers and spent by some estimates between one and two trillion dollars on this war in Iraq, even a fraction of those resources uh, I think it's hard to believe that at least some of the challenges to preventing genocide and mass killing that I think we all need to recognize couldn't be overcome. So that's it. <laughs> Sir. <clears throat> so there's a, again, this will get into a little bit of the kinds of situations in which I think leaders have an incentive to carry out genocide and mass killing. There's a, a class of, uh, of genocides, that, a class of mass killings that focus on counterinsurgency, counter-rebellion uh, techniques. In other words, leaders believe that a population is rising up against them, and they crack down on that population, often on the civilians because they have a difficult time determining who's the guerrilla fighter and who is the... In 1915. Yeah, so I'll explain if you're not aware. Um, so, so here's what happens in 1915. Um, so uh, Armenians had actually been uh, treated relatively well under the Turkish regime for, for many years, although uh, at the end of the 1800s and into the early 1900s, they were subject to some quite serious massacres as they, like many other groups that were part of the Ottoman Empire, started to agitate for some degree of uh, autonomy or eventually independence. Um, and, and the Armenians themselves were divided as to what they should do. Uh, should they agitate for complete independence from the Ottoman Empire? Should they uh, advocate for autonomy or simply just uh, protection of their own rights and interests within the, within the empire? When World War I breaks out in 1914, a small group of Armenians, I think uh, an a group that does not represent by any stretch most Armenians, uh, saw this as an opportunity to, uh, to break away. Some uh, actually volunteered to go fight in the <coughs> Russian army, which was invading uh, Turkey now from the north. And, Turk and then some, uh, in some cities in Armenia, there were uprisings. Some question about which came first. In this case, were the Turks uh, cracking down or were the uprisings coming first? But clearly, the Turks were reacting to what they saw, I think incorrectly, as a broad-based threat uh, to their control of this region, which they saw as part of the heartland of, the, of not just the Ottoman Empire, but Turkey. Uh, and they saw now these Armenians as not just being 
uh, rebels, dissidents, but traitorous because they had aligned themselves with the invading Russian army. And so much of the violence that is known today as the Armenian Genocide is, in fact, an effort by the Turkish regime to crush this perceived resistance. And I'll say most of it, I think, was misperceived. Um, but there was some real threat, uh, some element of real threat to the well, Turkish regime. Into your model. I mean, I, I would say, would you say only a few Turks did this? Or, I mean, you know, the Armenians were the ones uh, it's difficult to know. We don't have a lot of evidence about Turkish attitudes at the time to the violence. Clearly, it was ordered uh, at the highest levels of the, uh, of the Turkish government, which was not democratically elected, so we can't assume that it represented necessarily the interests of, uh, of Turks uh, as a whole. In parts, of the air, in parts of Turkey where Armenians lived, there were uh, other groups, Kurds included, who did not get along very well with Armenians and had been responsible in the past for some violence. Um, so I would say that it's true that uh, – I'd say that the evidence in Turkey is mixed about the attitude of the, the general population towards the Armenians. I don't think we have a lot of evidence that there was widespread agitating for genocide uh, by Turks, but uh, it's also not clear that uh, most Turks were vehemently opposed to the violence either. But again, most of it was occurring out in the hinterland, away from where a lot of Turks lived. They wouldn't have experienced it or known mm -hmm. much about it. Sir? Do you have any modern examples of modern democracies conducting genocide? No, in, in fact, uh, I don't have any examples of democracies conducting genocide against their own citizens. This, some people make a lot of this finding. I, I tend not to think it's very important in the sense that I'm not sure one can imagine a country still meeting the definition of genocide while simultaneously killed without judicial proceedings 50,000 of its own people. That's the cutoff I just – arbitrary cutoff I use in, in the book. So I have no examples of that, but we have many examples of democracies killing non-citizens either at home, such as Native Americans in, in this country, although that happens not in the 20th century but before, um, and plenty of examples of mass killing carried out abroad. Question about whether you want to call that genocide or not, but certainly mass killing. Um, so when you look at root causes, then, would you consider the political structure as the primary root cause? It, the reason that I think democracy is important is, uh, and, and so one interesting thing about the, these few examples where democracies do engage in it, usually abroad or against non-citizens, is that they tend to be some of the examples where there's the most popular support for it. Americans broadly supported the bombing of uh, Germany and Japan. They still do today, even though we now know the full toll of the, of the war, even though some people question whether it was necessary to end the war. It was broad popular support for it. So democracies are somewhat different in that respect. They represent one case where there's a lot of support uh, for mass killings. So it might be true in other countries as well for killings abroad. But domestically, I think it's true. What is, why, is why is mass killing not so prevalent in democracies apart from this sort of definitional issue. I think it's because in democracies it's very difficult for small, unrepresentative, radical groups to achieve power. That's exactly what the democracy is supposed to prevent from happening. And since I think it's generally the case that populations don't want to see their neighbors slaughtered in front of their eyes, they don't vote for people like that. The Ku Klux Klan, for example, I'm always reminded had it in this country at various times over a million members. And even today it has 20,000 uh, members at a minimum. That's more than enough people to carry out a massive amount of violence. It's more people than in some of the other cases of mass killing that I talk about in the book. 
So what's stopping them is not that they haven't managed to generate the right numbers, but that there are alternative centers of power in this country that stand against them, that they can't manage to achieve unopposed power at the highest levels. If they were to attempt violence like this, there would be people to oppose them. In Cambodia, there was nobody to oppose their version of the Ku Klux Klan. That's right. Okay, so that's what I wanted to get to. That couldn't you read sort of like the Great Leap Forward or sort of like all the mass death that resulted from Soviet industrialization as sort of a very macabre transaction cost of forced modernization, whereas genocide would be Rwanda, the, the, the Holocaust. I mean, is there a distinction sort of like where, where the extermination of a group sort of defined racially or something like that, as opposed to, well, these people just needed to die along the way so that we could get modern fast to pursue our political goals? I mean, is there a distinction? I think, I think you're, yeah, you're on to something, and I do think of genocide as a subset of mass killings more, more generally. Uh, so, that, so that's, I'm entirely with you there, and I think you're, what you said about the, the communist mass killings is generally the way I think about them. Although I think that, that we could be, we could draw too, uh, too clear a line between these two kinds of, of, of mass killings, where people generally tend to think of racially motivated mass killings or mass killings against ethnic groups as being purely destructive, just an effort to eliminate some members of society. And they think of these communist mass killings, as you said, as kind of constructive. I don't think that that line is quite so clear. In both cases, there are some of the other, right? So in some cases, I mean, Hitler was aiming for a sort of racial utopia, not just a place in which Jews would be absent, but in which Germans and their biological progeny would, uh, would generate a, a more powerful race, a healthier race, all of these crazy ideas that he had. And likewise, there were some people in the Soviet Union who Stalin simply thought had no part to play in any future uh, uh, of, of communism there. So there's some of each and both, but the general point is, is well taken. Thanks. Especially, I mean, maybe ask an empirical question. Um, 
Do you have a single case of a genocide that begins and then the people rise up and prevent the small collection of hooligans or uh, killers or whatever pieces of the state from doing it? Or is there a single case where that happens? And there's certainly, in most cases, there's some resistance, although it's usually not enough to stop it. Uh, I'm trying to think if there, I mean, these, these would not be cases of mass killing. In my book, I look at some cases of, uh, that you might think would lead to mass killing, but, but don't. But I don't think I have any examples like that off the top of my head. Are you going to suggest one? Well, that's good. We don't, he's asking for one that doesn't, right? actually would rise to the level of mass killing in, in my book. So by some estimates, there's many as 200,000 uh, people are killed, but 70,000 Germans. Uh, so the other, the other 130,000 are invalids that they kill in areas that they occupy. Uh, but they do kill 70,000 ethnic Germans who are long-term care patients. Uh, so that does make it mass killing. And some people, though, you're right, have pointed to uh, this and said, Goldog in particular says, uh, the Germans rose up against this and said, stop it, no, let's stop killing these people. And he says this shows that Germans were willing to stand up uh, to protect their own, but not to protect uh, the Jews. Uh, I'd say two things about this. One, uh, very few Germans actually rose up and, and said this. There were a few prominent people who did. Second, Hitler stopped the program, not because uh, of this public pressure, but because he killed everybody that he had already intended to kill. There's a memo from the 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 doctors who were in charge of the euthanasia program that said, we've accomplished exactly killing as many people as we'd hoped to kill in the beginning. There's no reason to continue the, the program. Uh, so I don't think it, it counts as a good example, really, although it's, it's another example where we saw some resistance, but that's not uncommon. Let me see if I can't get at some of your other questions. I agree that on the second question, that these, uh, this uh, social engineering uh, is, is not necessarily, I mean, it could prevent mass killing. I don't think, so I didn't mean to imply that if you could heal these societies in some way, that wouldn't also make mass killing at least less likely there. Although I think you'd have to do a very good job of it, right? Especially you'd have to make sure they were eventually democracies. Well, I, yep. Can you then account for the lack of mass killing in the United States, given the plan with a million people, the plan with 20,000? Yeah, I think, I think democracy is a really good uh, preventative, because then you can have minorities who, who might want to do this kind of thing, but they don't. They don't get to. They don't get to act on it. Um, I'm just saying I think, I, although I would like that, and I would like it for lots of reasons if everybody was a democracy and if everybody raised their children well, I think it's, it's deeply impractical, and, and it's much easier said than done. On the first question, you won't be surprised that I get this quite, <laughs> quite frequently. It is clearly uh, one implication, and I've gone back and forth myself about it many, many times. Uh, there's only two things I could say as to why I don't make a bigger, why I don't, claim that more uh, as a solution myself. First is that I think, again, assassination is easier said than done. Uh, we've tried in many cases uh, over extended periods of time to assassinate particular leaders from Castro to Saddam. And it's actually harder than you would think without actually invading and occupying a country to get those leaders. We tried to kill Hitler uh, repeatedly during uh, World War II, as did some of his, his own generals. Uh, and they all failed. So it's not, it's easier said than done, although one has to believe it's easier than World War II. Uh, uh, that's not saying that much. Secondly, of course, there is the problem about how do we know who's Hitler um, and, uh, you know, and who's simply Himmler. 
Himmler at the end of the war uh, starts to be willing to negotiate with the Allies uh, to, to stop killing Jews. Um, how do we know which of these people is which? Who do we want to give the authority to to decide who gets the bomb uh, on their on their car as they're leaving for some head of state meeting and who's not? It's obviously a deeply complicated and politically fraught uh, question. Um, so I. I think that in some cases I probably would advocate this, but I'm reluctant to do it as a sort of blanket uh, recommendation. Alex. Uh, a couple questions. First, I guess <coughs> the idea that the Holocaust was instrumental for the or German behavior more generally was to about when they invade Russia, they, they crush the Ukrainian rather than liberate them. Right? The Ukrainians were happy to fight against Soviet. Maybe the answer, maybe I'll answer both in the same way, kind of. Um, so I don't think there is a single theory, and I don't actually purport to have a single theory that explains uh, why this happens, nor do, I, nor do I end the argument at simply saying it could be, we could think of it as instrumental. The hard work is actually determining under what conditions leaders are likely to see this as being in their interest. And I think you just named about all of the different kinds of situations in which uh, leaders are likely to see it in their interest, and they see it in their interest for very different reasons in each of these cases. Nevertheless, they do share this thing. I think you're right to characterize it as thin. They share, they share this thin level of instrumentality across all of them, and it's important to point that out because, as I said, the literature as I encountered it when I began was so focused on the opposite conclusion, that all of this was completely killing for its own sake. People hate victims. They want them off the face of the earth. That's what genocide is about. Um, and so much of that, what I talked about today in the first part of my book is designed to counter that, to convince people that that doesn't have to be true. But then the whole rest of the book, and I think this is right, is essentially developing several quite distinct theories to explain why mass killing occurs in communist states, why it occurs against ethnic groups, why it occurs in uh, uh, insurgencies, and in my later work, although it's not in the book, why it occurs in more conventional wars. Um, so... I don't think that there is uh, a single theory. Let's talk now a little bit more about this uh, instrumentality and just how thin it is and what, what does it have to say about the Holocaust. I think the Holocaust comes closest uh, to a case uh, of killing for its own sake. But even there, I think um, that essentially what Hitler wanted, Hitler conceived of the Jews as threatening to him in various ways, both biologically and politically. And essentially, his goal was to remove them from German society. And I spend some time in the book showing how, during the first seven years of his regime, he was trying very hard to get Jews out of Germany without actually killing them. Uh, many of these policies were quite horrific and had, uh, and some of the plans were they ever implemented, like shipping them all to Madagascar, um, which was taken quite seriously within the regime, 
um, would have resulted in horrible, horrible deaths for, uh, for the Jews, but nevertheless was not genocide or mass killing. And in fact, as a result of these policies, something like 75% of German Jews actually leave the country before the Holocaust begins. So from the time Hitler takes power um, to the beginning of the Holocaust, 75% of, of German Jews leave the country essentially with the Nazis' blessing. They're trying to get them out. And many of them go to places that the Nazis never planned to reconquer uh, so they could get their hands on them later. Now, a lot of people point to some other behaviors, I think you were getting at it a little bit, that Hitler did during the war, like diverting trains from the front in order to ship Jews to the gas chambers and say, how could this possibly be instrumental? My argument has always been that you need to understand Hitler's view of the Jews to see that he saw the threat posed by the Jews as a greater threat uh, than even the act of fighting going on at the front. He said this in earliest in Mein Kampf, but he says it again and again uh, as the war winds on. He believes his theory of why Germany lost World War I, remember, is this stab in the back orchestrated by domestic and international Jewish conspiracy working against him. He says, so he says again and again, it does us no good to achieve victories on the battlefield if we have fifth columns uh, within our ranks. And he believed after... Uh, after Germany had invaded Eastern Europe and occupied several countries and, uh, and massive resistance movements emerged there, although you're right that they actually emerged because of the brutality of, of Nazi policies, Hitler believed that these, again, were orchestrated by the Jews. But if, on the ground level, there were, there were officers in the German army who clearly recognized that the policies were counterproductive. And in fact, to the extent that Jews were involved in the resistance, it was because German policies had given them no other choice. Their, their choice was to report to the gas chamber or to, to resist at any means possible. They understood this on the ground. Hitler didn't see it that way. So again, to say that it's instrumental doesn't mean to say that it uh, was effective or even that it was rational. It was based on beliefs uh, that I think all of us would acknowledge are bizarre. Um, but I think they were sincerely held by Hitler, not actually by very many others in his, uh, in his regime, but by, uh, but by Hitler for sure. If those plans had been, if the Madagascar plan had been enacted and Jews had died in those numbers, it certainly would have been counted as a mass killing. So it's not to differentiate whether those policies would have led to mass killing or not that I highlight them. It's only insofar as they shed some light on Hitler's motives. Uh, there is some question that people have asked, uh, were these uh, ghettoization policies, were the Madagascar, was the Madagascar plan simply Hitler's effort to kill by other means. It was, did he intend them to be sort of crude gas chambers without the gas? People just die by uh, starvation. It's quite clear from uh, the internal records of the regime that that is not what those uh, plans were intended to do. The Germans were willing to accept large numbers of Jewish deaths there, but they did not intend to kill them. We know this because those people who oversaw the plans, the, the actual ghettos in Eastern Europe, the Madagascar plan never implemented, of course, kept writing up to their superiors, people are dropping like flies in, this, um, in, this, in these ghettos. Don't you think it would be more humane simply to kill them all? Um, and again and again, they were told by their superiors, no, uh, we're not doing that. Um, there are various reasons why they, uh, why they delayed 
ultimately that decision, which we can talk about. But, uh, but so I think I'm pointing to that not because I think it, it would not have led to massive death, even probably mass killing, um, but just to, to highlight a distinction, I think, that people don't recognize in Hitler's motivations. As far as the people who participate, I think the motives can be quite diverse um, from the motives that I think the conventional wisdom would expect, these, that there are some people who are true believers. They're convinced of the necessity of wiping out this uh, population. There are such people. But I think they generally make up the minority of actual perpetrators, even in cases like the Holocaust. Chris Browning's study of the perpetrators uh, of this police battalion in, in Poland uh, says that you could basically divide the group up into, into three groups. Uh, a very small group, about uh, 10%, that is uh, actively interested in, uh, in killing, that seems to, be, uh, seems to like it. Maybe they even have a sadistic tendency, but they seem to be strong supporters of Nazism and the idea of the Holocaust. Another 10, 20% uh, who are evaders, the people who try to get out of uh, uh, killing whenever possible, try to just not show up for those operations. And then the vast muddy middle, um, you know, 60, 80% of the group whose um, attitudes, he says, is one of uh, partaking when necessary but only when ordered to do so, never exceeding their orders as the top uh, 10% would do. And those people, Browning argues, and I think this is often the case, are motivated as much by peer pressure uh, and authority uh, here they are in the middle of nowhere with a group of men. This is their job. To defect is to let down their comrades. To say, you have to do it is to mean that your buddy, the person who's responsible for protecting you in a foreign land in the middle of a war, you're going to put this dirty job onto his shoulders. And so people found it very hard to do, even though it appears that many of them struggled with it. I think there can be, as, I mean, some people join these uh, groups for very personal reasons, to get revenge for some specific harm. The, the thing to keep in mind is, because there's a need for so few of them, when the, you know, when the call comes out to ask people to join up in these organizations, it can attract people for any reason. Um, and there's no reason to believe that there needs to be just one, just as Alex was saying, there's no reason to believe um, that there needs to be just one general theory. Now, as for the general population, I think there the, the, uh, the answer is a, it tends to be a little more uniform, and that is people are scared. Um, I mean, you have to picture yourself. Imagine it's your own neighborhood, and you're not armed, you're not trained in, in any, uh, any military training, and a group, even a small group, of well-armed, determined men show up to drag away your neighbor and, and kill him. What, what would you do? How, you know, do you think you would really risk your own life? You, I know you've got children, I have children. Um, what, you know, would you be willing to take that risk? And what if it's not your next-door neighbor, as is usually not the case in these situations, but essentially a stranger, right? Remember, Jews were less than 1% of the German population. So most Germans had never met a Jew. Were they going to risk their own lives to defend an absolute stranger? Uh, I don't think we should be all that surprised when we find people don't do that in large numbers. Um, so I think most people are simply afraid, even if they disagree. Again, there are some cases where they, they do agree with the policy, so the, it, their, their motives aren't homogenous, uh, or they may benefit in some, in some ways. John. 
American Secretary of State who was here on television hmm. and uh, asked the question. Uh, we, got, we understand the 500,000 Iraqi children died in the sanctions. Do you think it's been worth it? <laughs> <laughs> Again, as I said, I've got no faith that democracies don't do this abroad. In fact, we were discussing at dinner last night uh, I'm, in another project that I'm working on, I'm asking about, uh, about civilian deaths during war. And one of the findings that I uh, have come up with is that democracies in certain kinds of wars, essentially very difficult, long wars, are actually more likely to kill and kill in larger numbers civilians on the other side than non-democracies. And you can imagine why this is true. Um, it's an effort in, uh, to spare our own soldiers, the fighting, an effort to coerce these enemies into surrendering. This is the justification for the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and, and so I think democracies, in a way, when we talk about foreign wars, I have no faith, I have less faith in them in some ways than non-democracies because we're so desperately concerned with limiting our own casualties that we're likely to push them off onto others. And so our policy in Iraq was one that limited the cost to ourselves and maximized them not only to, to Saddam and his supporters, right, but even to possible allies of the United States, people who might have in this war have supported us but who are, who are now either embittered or no longer even alive to, to be supporters of the United States. So, yeah, I, my, my, my uh, respect and, and admiration for democracies in those settings is not particularly high to begin with. In five years or less. Oh, okay. yeah. But that's obviously completely arbitrary, right? Those are just numbers I pulled. I have five fingers, so. Yes. Yeah, I, again, I think the key thing to recognize here is that just by recognizing that it's instrumental, that's the, actually the easy part. And the hard part is deciding why leaders see it as a, as a good instrumental policy in some cases and not in others. And I think it's, it's, it's right. You can, I mean, you can go way too far in thinking, well, sure, genocide will solve any problem, right? The Democrats should want to commit that genocide against, or we're out of power, we want to come back, right? Let's kill all the Republicans. That would be a solution. I think, uh, and, and one thing that my research really focuses on is even these leaders who ultimately end up committing genocide usually try just about every other means they can think of before they get there. Uh, because committing genocide has real costs even from the purely self-interested view of the perpetrators, right? It, it is, it has potential to backfire. It can provoke resistance from the people who you're attacking. It can draw in uh, third parties from the outside as it did in almost all the cases in, in my book. Um, and, uh, and so leaders are reluctant to go down that road. And I also think there's some, often, Hitler's case uh, aside, some shred of morality uh, in many of these men that, that doesn't put killing 
at the top of their list, but instead as an accepted cost that comes at the bottom of the list. Not something they were eager to do, but something that in the end they were prepared to do. And so I think that generally in a, in a lot of these other cases where you say why not, you see leaders trying some other strategies uh, first or simply faced with a problem for which it really doesn't make sense to wipe out huge numbers of defenseless men, women, and children. In many cases, remember, these leaders are they're profoundly wrong about the nature of the threat against them. There often is a threat, but they tend to generalize it from a small group uh, of people, say in Rwanda, from an invading army that's made up largely of Tutsi to the entire Tutsi population, most of whom are not actually uh, a direct threat to the regime. They're women and children. Um, so there's a profound mistake that many of these leaders make by generalizing from the actions of a few to many. Not all leaders make that mistake. Um, and so I'm sort of beginning after after that already happens. We could have a bunch of other, yes, that's right. Um, and, and we could uh, hypothesize and theorize, probably should, about why some leaders come to adopt these ideas that we recognize in, in retrospect as being crazy, uh, and some leaders manage to avoid them. But that my book doesn't provide those answers. Going back to the new I, I surely don't intend to poo-poo democracy promotion. I love democracy. I think it's a, it's a solution to many problems, not just the one I happen uh, to study. So I, I love it and, and I, I, I applaud, uh, at least I applaud uh, careful efforts at democracy promotion. Um, I simply think that in terms of, uh, this is at best a very long-term solution. Um, and there, the, since there are so many reasons to be in favor of spreading democracy, I mean, this is the least reason to be in favor of it, right? For most countries will benefit from democracy, not because it will prevent a mass killing in, the, in their country, but because it will provide freedom to the, their people, uh, better, better economic situation, all those things that matter to many more people than will ever be killed in genocide. So I couldn't support it in more um, categorical terms. Uh, I just think that if we think that this is the short-term, even medium-term solution to the problem of genocide in our world, uh, then, we're, then we're just going to stand by and watch a lot of it occur as we claim to be helping to support democracy. And it is hard, and it's expensive. Uh, so you know, if we're interested in helping others by spreading democracy and we want to do it right as opposed to do it on the cheap, we've got to be prepared for a major expenditure. I'm, I'm in favor of that still, but... Uh, Let's not uh, kid ourselves about what it would really take. Sir? I think, uh, I, and I recognize this fully, it, because I, it, you know, every time I give a talk, there are rooms often filled with people who are more concerned about these broad uh, social causes and 
and many of us in, in the, our other work end up focusing on those things. Uh, I think it's partly because it's, once you start focusing on small groups and individuals, it becomes very difficult to generalize uh, about them. Uh, understanding why it is that Stalin uh, came to believe that communism was the answer for his country doesn't help us really understand why Hitler came to believe that uh, wiping out Jews was an answer to a threat for his country. So political scientists especially are guilty of, of so desperately wanting to, have, to get their hands on general causes uh, that they're interested in these broad general variables even if they explain relatively little of the variance. Um, and so I think that's what's driving it mainly in political science. Um, I would hope, as, and historians seem, I don't know if you're a historian, but historians seem much more uh, inclined uh, to be able to accept this. And it's, it's one thing I noticed when I did my work, how I kept being shocked at, I would read these explanations in theoretical books on genocide, and then I would pick up the histories of the cases that they were discussing. And all of these cases were laying the blame at the doorstep of a few individual leaders, but the the people who were talking about genocide in general were talking about broad social problems. Um, and I think it's part of this, that you know, once you accept that these small groups of leaders are responsible, are, people believe that you therefore there's no room anymore for theory. Uh, there, then everything is idiosyncratic. There's no general explanation. I don't think that's true. I, I tried in my book to have it both ways, to say that we can think about individuals and small groups and what, they, uh, and what their interests are. Um, and we could talk about those kinds of interests in general terms and say, when we see small groups or individual leaders who have these kinds of goals and interests or find themselves in these kinds of situations, we should be concerned about what they might do. And we should look at the world through their eyes as opposed to through our eyes because oftentimes we'll see things very different ways. And it's how they view the threat to them that really matters. Um, but that's my guess as to why, at least in political science, we, we struggle so much to, um, to recognize the power of small groups. I don't think it, that, that it ends with the question of mass killing and genocide, the power of groups like this. Uh, I think many other social, social phenomena are, in fact, instigated and carried out by relatively small groups of people. Even in history, as you probably know, uh, there's been a move in the last several decades away from the great men kind of uh, books towards more social history that, again, wants to look at causes at, on a much broader level. One more? It'll be short. Um, um, is, uh, is Robert Mugabe committing genocide? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I have a question on sort of democratic pushback. Um, I'm thinking that the United States has really only used city busing bombing four times, right? Germany, Japan, North Korea, and North Vietnam. And the pushback in North Vietnam was so severe that it undermined Johnson Pushback from the public right. in the United States. Yes, and that it almost got, you know, if Bobby Kennedy hadn't been assassinated, he probably would have unseated the sitting incumbent in the primary. Um, and then in Iraq 1, Kosovo, and Iraq 2, I, my sense, and we'll just play with the details, is that we were pretty restrained in targeting large civilian targets, which, you know, like yeah. Kosovo, we dropped like tinfoil on the electrical plants and yeah. all this kind of stuff. And like when we hit, like, remember we, like, we hit a train and we like had this big debate. Very the sorry. My sense is that we are trying. That yep. sort of, it was so bad in Vietnam. We were so over the top that we just like, we're not going to bomb huge numbers of civilians anymore. That we have learned morally to be better <coughs> in the way we exercise force against civilians. Precision weapon. I mean, it's it was bad what we did, but I think we're better. I mean, is that does that sound right, or are we just sort of? Yeah, there's a number of things I could say about this. On the Mugabe question, uh, 
all I'll say is I'm concerned, but I think right as of now, the numbers aren't where they would be for my, to make my cutoff. The last I saw, it could have changed. I haven't checked on it in several months. Um, but this is obviously one of those places we should be concerned about. Your second question, quite interesting. <clears throat> I would say it's true that in our last two major wars, the two wars in, in Iraq, uh, we went to great lengths to avoid the kind of uh, uh, intentional targeting of civilians that we saw in the other wars. In fact, in, even in Vietnam, there was relatively little intentional bombing of civilian targets. We killed lots of civilians in Vietnam, but the intentional targeting of that mostly occurred on the ground um, in, as part of the counterinsurgency operation there. And much of it was carried out by our allies. The, the South Vietnamese Army actually did much of the counter-civilian targeting in that war. So now the question is why uh, have we done less, whereas in World War II and, uh, and uh, Korea, we just burned down every city we could get our hands on. And you were suggesting that it, it's a moral conversion, possibly at the, uh, in the American public. I'm skeptical uh, of that. I think uh, I've seen some polls, some very frightening polls, about uh, Americans and their views on using nuclear weapons in Iraq right now. Uh, and something like 30% of Americans support using nuclear weapons in Iraq right now, even though there's no apparent military justification for this, even though no targets for it, even though none of their leaders have told them that it would be a good idea yet. So. I think there's still a vast reservoir of willingness in the American public to kill uh, our enemies and their civilians in war uh, even today. So now the question is why aren't we doing it in those last two wars? I think actually some credit goes here to the Air Force, which learned I think even uh, after World War II, but especially by the end of Korea, that this kind of bombing simply wasn't working for them. Uh, that they killed and killed and killed as much as they could and it didn't seem to help. In fact, there was some evidence that it was backfiring. Uh, driving people to oppose us even more, um, and, uh, and it hurt our cause. And so even by Vietnam, there was an increased effort to avoid uh, civilian targeting. And I think now technology and doctrine have come together in a way that uh, has allowed us to, to minimize, although certainly not um, do away with altogether, civilian deaths from bombing. And now most of the deaths that occur in the wars that America fights are the kind that John was mentioning before, deaths that result from the destruction of infrastructure, the dis dislocation of uh, the economic uh, uh, structures in a society, those sorts of things. We bear some responsibility for that as well, in part because we choose to fight these wars in ways that maximizes those, that kind of damage in an effort to minimize <coughs> losses to our own troops. I want to thank Ben for coming and giving us a very interesting talk and thank him again for writing such an interesting book. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Before I let you go, I want to make uh, two quick announcements. One, this is the second in four talks that have things to do with large killing. Jen Rubenstein was here last week to talk about UN and NGO. Next Wednesday afternoon, we're going to show a film called The Peacemakers. Ben and I were talking last night uh, very large-scale killing now, sort of an invisible war in Congo. Ben said four million. I hadn't realized it was that, that high. But clearly it's been invisible to the American public. But the United Nations has a peacekeeping force in Congo, a fairly large one. Now, I've made a movie, and they're distributing it nationally, and we've, they've asked if we would sort of air it here as part of a nationwide opening. So next Wednesday night at 5.30, we're going to show this film, and you'll see some advertising all over campus. Because the following Wednesday night, Paul... Rusinabinga? How do you say Rusinabinga? Rusinabinga. Rusinabinga. The man who was the hotel operator in Hotel Rwanda will be here to talk about the Rwandan genocide. So this is sort of a theme we're running through this spring.
And the second announcement, as much as I have a policy against no double headers on a single day, uh, the best uh, efforts got away from me this, this day because last week the U.S. government, through Richard Haas, decided that the Council on Foreign Relations should have a meeting on Iran's nuclear program and invited uh, Mahmoud Sayo Ghalam to come to the United States at the last minute. So he came to New York on Thursday to be at the CFR and then Friday at NDU. And this afternoon he agreed he'd be in Columbus. So he's here and he's going to speak on Iran's nuclear policy. So if you're free at 3.30, you have an opportunity to see somebody fresh from Iran who's then leaving later this evening uh, to head off. So it's a very short uh, opportunity, so I had to grab it. This room at 3.30 if you're free. Ben, once again, thank, thank you very you. much. Thanks thank for coming. You. Congratulations.